Midnight GMT. Hello, I'm Roger Hearing and this is Business Matters on the BBC World Service. We're connecting the time zones. Today we're live in Stanford and Seoul. In a few moments we're going to be looking at uh, something called the gig economy. How does the gig economy work? What does it provide? And who are the leaders in the field? Stay with us. Much more coming up on all that in just a few moments. Welcome back to Business Matters with me, Roger Hearing, and my guests today, Alison Van Diggelen and Stephanie Studer. Now, Alison, I know you've been looking into something that's, well, it's quite a strange concept, or strange word, I suppose, if one even knows what the concept is, the gig economy. Now, just tell us, uh, what is the gig economy? So a gig, it's actually been um, borrowed from the music industry, Roger. So the idea is that workers who work in the gig economy don't have regular full-time work, but they work in gigs. For example, people who work for Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, Etsy, Upwork and TaskRabbit. So I've actually been speaking with Stacey Brown-Philpott. She's the CEO of TaskRabbit. And it's a website and app that matches job seekers with jobs. Things like house cleaning, shopping, delivery, handyman jobs. It was founded in 2008. It was one of the first in the gig economy. And Stacey told me how the company launched its international operation in London in 2012. And it changed, it It did what it called a pivot. It changed its bidding for a job model to a direct hire approach. This was a huge success in London, but when they tried it back in the United States, they faced a severe backlash from contractors here. But yet, they stuck to their guns, and last year the business grew 400%. So I asked Stacey what advice she would give to other businesses about staying the course when they try to pivot their business model and face similar challenges. Know exactly what it is that you are focused on and don't lose track of that and stay laserly focused on what that goal is. And despite the noise that comes into the marketplace, stay focused on what your goal is and believe more than anyone else and you can get there. So let's talk about other challenges. There's a lot of critics of the on-demand economy saying it doesn't offer a living wage benefits to workers. This whole Uber issue of independent contractors, not employees. Can you give me your perspective on that? Our taskers are independent contractors. They can work in a flexible way, and that is the number one reason why they stay. We have very low churn, 10%. So the flexibility that we are able to offer our taskers is unparalleled, and it's necessary. What needs to happen is that the regulation and policy has to change in order to support the sharing economy. In fact, when you look at the structures that we're working under, these were created in the 1900s, and they no longer apply. We need something that adapts to the technology-enabled businesses that we operate under today. What specifically would you like to see as far as regulation change? One of the trade-offs that we face every single day is the ability to offer training and more transferable skills to our taskers. And we'd love to see regulation evolve to support that. We'd also love to see opportunities to access health care and retirement because, quite frankly, we empower this community to create a social safety net for taskers who really want a flexibility to work in a meaningful way. And so we have a responsibility to also partner with them and collaborate with them to do other things like have health care and retirement savings. Let's talk about diversity. You are a rare person. You're black, you're female CEO in Silicon Valley. Talk about the pros and cons of that. Well, the pro is that I stand out. 
whenever I walk into a room and you're trying to meet somebody, I said, press me, you'll find me. <laughs> you'll see who I am. Um, but the con is also that I stand out. And sometimes I look around and I wish, you know, there were more people that look like me. But I certainly have spent a lot of time thinking about that. At TaskRabbit, over 58% of our staff are women. We have 11% African-Americans. And it's a stated goal that we have to increase those numbers. And so I feel a responsibility just to feel more welcome wherever I go to increase those numbers and encourage everybody in our industry, not just the sharing economy, but the tech industry overall to do the same. And what specifically do you do? So we specifically have goals around targets that we measure in hiring. And so whenever we bring someone in, we want to hire, we want to make sure that that population of people we're interviewing is a diverse population of people. We also do things culturally in terms of our offsites and our events to make sure that everybody feels like they can bring their whole self to work because many of our new hires come from referrals. And so if you feel like you can bring your whole self to work, you can bring someone who's different, who has a diverse background as a referral and a great candidate for the company. And tell me about future goals. Do you have wild dreams about where TaskRabbit could be in five, ten years? I do. I I believe TaskRabbit should exist everywhere. I've never been anywhere in the world where TaskRabbit shouldn't be. You know, we are creating everyday work for everyday people. And this is a phenomenon that is global. And so I want to be global as a company. Millions of families are time-starved. You know, countless number of people are looking to find work. And they're looking for an opportunity for growth and creating a meaningful income. And that's an economic responsibility that we take seriously. So I think we're shaping the future of work. And that was Stacey Brown Philpot, the uh, boss of Task Rabbit, uh, speaking there to you, Alison. Now, um, it was fascinating to hear well lots of things about it, not least the, the very concept of a gig economy and how they work within it. But uh, does it mean does it change the future of work? Do you think is it, is it uh, these kind of uh, companies in like Uber, Etsy, etc.? Um, is it going to be a fundamental change in our concept of of employment and how things are done? It's very interesting. There seems to be a lot of anecdotal evidence. It's hard to get strong evidence that's reliable. But according to the U.S. Census, growth on this gig economy was the fastest growing employment sector last year. So it is a trend that is you know, moving in that direction. Uh, and also a study by Intuit predicted that by 2020, 40% of American workers will be these independent contractors. It's currently around 30%. So it is definitely moving in that direction and it will have these knock-on effects because especially here in the United States, we don't have a national health service. So the these people who are working these gig economy jobs, they don't have benefits through their employment necessarily. So there are things that will have to change to allow that to, to happen. And it hasn't all been uh, roses, as you kind of alluded to there in the in the interview, because there was a kind of revolt against Task Rabbit. Uh, just, just tell us a little bit more about that and, and the kind of criticism they had early on in the States. Yes. Well, what it used to be, what they originally set up was a bidding system where taskers, that's the the contractors, would bid on a particular job. And they felt they had more control that way. And what they did was, um, TaskRabbit, after trying this new system out, this on-demand system where it was just, you know, there, there wasn't a bidding process, 
um, they got this huge backlash and they they made a lot of um, they they learned a lot of lessons from it uh, one of, of which was you can't overdo the communication they thought that they had told the US taskers before the system changed but obviously a lot of people hadn't you know really understood what was happening and um, Stacey Brown Philpott it's quite interesting she has a 10-year history previous to TaskRabbit working at Google and she used her experience there her product experience to just stay the course she said that she recalled when a new version of Gmail came out people hated it people hated Google for this change people are just you know by definition opposed to change she found and by staying the course they found that actually what they found, what they're saying is that the taskers benefited, TaskRabbit benefited, and it was a win-win, and it was a vocal minority that, you know, were opposed to this change. Well, you do always get conservatives in these kind of situations. I suppose you don't like that. But let me come to you, Stephanie, on this, because uh, where you are is one of the most wired, most um, technologically advanced nations on the planet. Is the gig economy, or this kind of thing, is it taking off there as well in South Korea? Well, what's interesting is that when um, Uber arrived in South Korea, um, it was actually quite swiftly forced out. And, um, and I think that sort of comes back to some of the some of the issues we have with industries which are quite protectionist. This is the taxi drivers here um, who thought that it was going to affect um, their livelihoods. Um, but interestingly, in Korea for years now, there's been a system um, known as Teddy Unjon, which is which means um, substitute driver, which is a, a service you can call this service up and they'll bring um, you home. Usually, it's um, drunk businessmen drive you home in your car, um, which is which is fantastic. So there's obviously you know a lot of um, as you say because it's a you know connected society and people are on their on their smartphones so much and. Um, it, it, it means it's a lot easier to sort of get these sorts of services and, and connect people. And more than just the drivers. I mean, would, if, if you wanted your house painted or if you wanted uh, someone to come and babysit quickly or something like that. Again, are those kind of services available easily in that sort of way? Um, I'm not sure that there's been the sort of flourishing the way that we have seen in um, in America with things like Etsy and um, and even, a, I mean, I struggle to think of a sort of Airbnb equivalent, although that is increasingly popular here. Um, so I suppose there's probably there's probably some reticence maybe beyond the driving. What, do, you think it, do you think that's just a cultural thing? Do you think it's just a, a sense that things are done differently and, and even with all the technology available, they don't actually want that kind of service? It could be. Um, I'm not sure. There's perhaps some reticence to, I mean, for example, culturally speaking, it's um, quite unusual to sort of invite somebody um, into your home here unless they're sort of a, a very, very close friend. Or um, So perhaps there's a, there's a certain sense of privacy which might limit um, the, the sort of takeoff of these sorts of systems. So it's difficult to imagine, you know, um, strangers sort of meeting, you know, in an Airbnb uh, context, for example, um, in... In, um, homes here, but you know, with a younger generation now, that could well change. Mm, Alison, there's no, there's no that kind of reticence doesn't really exist, I guess, where you are, does it? Especially in Silicon Valley, I mean, we are a community of early adopters by definition. People like to try new things, especially if it's technology enabled. But to address Stephanie's point about trust and safety, that is something that TaskRabbit has identified as a key barrier to entry, if you like. So they have a a trust and safety team. They do thorough background checks and each tasker has a 
um, face-to-face interview before they get on the roster of TaskRabbit. So that that was interesting to me. It's not just a case of you're getting the stranger to come to your your uh, house to um, you know deliver some goods or you know hang pictures on your walls. You're getting someone that has been had some kind of background check, which I'm sure puts puts some people's fears at rest. Mm, does it put your fears? Around? I mean, do you use Alison? Do you use these? I kind of have services? not used TaskRabbit yet, but I do have some uh, overdue painting of my skirting <laughs> boards being done at home, and I was looking at them and looking at TaskRabbit, but it's not a cheap service. Um, for the Bay Area, they were quoting me $65 an hour to do some painting, which I thought was rather steep, but maybe I'm just a cheap Scot. I'm, I'm doing a conversion in my head and thinking, yes, that probably is uh, about right. Um, that's about uh, maybe £50, 50 pounds. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's And Stephanie, lot, you just go to some traditional uh, purveyor of such things and, and pay a similar amount, do you think? Uh, here, yes, I, I guess so, um, for, for that sort of thing. Although, I mean, when I travel around the region, I love using um, Airbnb, and I think they're, you know, fantastic. So you're an adopter, and, and you, you don't mind, even if the culture you're in perhaps sometimes does. No, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, well, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much indeed. Now, time for some gratuitous music. Okay, okay, but are shorts okay for the office? On men, anyway. It's summer in the Northern Hemisphere, of course, and the question, a perennial, has come up again. The independent newspaper here in the UK devoted a whole column to the vexed etiquette of shorts on men at work. At the same time, in the US, what are called the cargo shorts wars are raging. An article in the Wall Street Journal, no less, suggested cargo shorts, they've got pockets they'd ask, are causing relationship problems across America. Even the Washington Post has got in on the act, appealing for sympathy for an item of clothing that, and I quote, helped defeat Hitler, apparently. Well, Drew Magari is a writer and columnist and author of The Hike, a new novel. He describes cargo shorts as a symbol of lame, middle-aged dadness. Alison, where do you stand on the cargo shorts wars? Well, I think, Roger, there's a time and a place for anything. On my way here, actually, to Stanford, it's about a half-hour drive, I saw two guys wearing cargo pants, and to me, they look sloppy and very geeky. My personal preference is utility kilts. They have the cargo pockets, they look stylish, and there's plenty of room for all your tech gadgets, your iPhone chargers, Red Bull, and your keys. Well, tell us about that. I've never heard of those. Oh, well, if you can imagine a kilt, you know, it's flat at the front, pleated at the back, but made of canvas canvas. They're actually quite popular here, especially in San Francisco. I first encountered one in KQED, our local uh, national public radio station, when I worked there in 2008. And they look super stylish and they have tons of pockets. Uh, and uh, I imagine quite cool to wear, probably. Very cool to wear, and I, yeah. I won't ask the question, obviously, as to whether anything is worn under the kilt, because that's, <laughs> that's just not a question that... Um, we should be talking about, I guess. Um, all right. Well, what about uh, moving over towards uh, South Korea? Uh, Stephanie, do first of all, do men wear shorts in the office when it's really hot in Seoul? 
They don't know. And it gets really hot here. Um, well, at the moment, it's about 34 degrees. Um, we're all sweating. And the trouble is that the government offices um, don't... Well, I think at the moment, if it's above 30 degrees, they will turn the AC on. But if it's just below, um, then they won't. And so it gets really hot inside offices as well. Um, but there's a very conservative um, dress culture here at work. Um, but interestingly, a couple of years ago, the mayor of Seoul um, did actually want to, to set a set a trend and went out wearing shorts to work. They weren't cargo shorts; they were a little bit. A little well, that's, bit that's a relief. That. Yeah. But, um, but it didn't. But it, I don't think it really had much of an effect, actually. Ah, so you don't <laughs> see anybody doing that now. He hasn't led a trend. It's not. It's not common. No, it didn't really take on. I mean, even in in Japan now, for a decade, I think they've they've got something called the um, a cool biz campaign, which is um, basically when temperatures rise above a certain level, people are encouraged to wear um, short sleeve shirts to work um, and uh, no ties. But that still doesn't include shorts, so no. you're still expected to wear long trousers. So why why in Korea would they be so stick in the mud about this? Is it is it just something deep in the culture that means they have to be formal all the time i think it is cultural i think it's a it's a sense of not sort of on the one hand not wanting to stick out um and i think it, it's also because i think um clothes and and appearance is still uh, very strongly tied to sort of your authority and, and your standing and um and your your rank as well so i think that there would be a sense you wouldn't be taken seriously if um if you went in in shorts Oh, okay, okay. Alison, I mean, I, I guess if you turned up in shorts to a meeting in uh, Silicon Valley, no one's going to bat an eyelid. I mean, you've already talked about kilts, but shorts, presumably, neither here nor there. It's it's rarely seen, to be honest. People, the the garb here is the hoodie, T-shirts and jeans, to be honest. You don't often see people wearing shorts to meetings, I have to say. No legs on view at all, though. Um. For the guys now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. We better, we, better, we better come to the aesthetic point in all this. Now, Alison, I, I, you're not, a th- I think, a fan of cargo pants, are you? Are you? Not particularly. But, I think, as I said, there's a time and a place. You know, if you're going through the rainforest of Costa Rica and you need all your, you know, your camera and your phone handy, fair enough. But uh, not mm, for work. Not as a style thing. But it, but but um, seeing the legs on men is reasonable in normal circumstances. Ordinary shorts. Um, not in a work circumstance, okay. but you know, if you go to a concert or whatever. I mean, we do have the temperatures. It's not quite as hot and sticky as Korea, <laughs> but uh, we're generally warmer than you guys uh, are in London. And Stephanie, briefly, would you like to see Korean men in shorts, or would you consider that a, a anathema? Well, I, I mean, I do like good dress, and I actually do appreciate the fact that people dress well. But um, <laughs> but I think it's so hot here at the moment that I, I would give them that, yes. All right, all right. Well, if anyone is listening and uh, wants to make a point, please do. Um, Stephanie might appreciate it. Uh, in the meantime, we'll leave you um, with, uh, well, a song about shorts. That's it from Business Matters, from Stephanie, from Alison and myself. Bye-bye. There's a short, short, short.